The following resources from Two Journeys. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God. Please visit twojourneys.org for more resources. All right, we're looking at the topic of covenants. Just by way of review, the the issue of covenants is the issue of how it is that God relates to us, how he relates to us as sinners, and the issue of covenants has been consistently the way that God has chosen to relate to sinners. This is just by way of review on the first sheet. A covenant is an unchangeable, divinely imposed legal agreement between God and man that stipulates the conditions of their relationship. That's uh, what he said. We went through some aspects of that last time. I believe that God relates to us in covenants because he wants us to be secure. Sin makes us insecure, doesn't it? I mean, you look around the world and everything uh, around us is crumbling and falling apart just as time moves on. We, we live in insecurity. And so God has chosen to give us a pattern of covenant relationships so that we will be secure, so that we will know the security of our relationship. He wants us to uh, be serving him and putting sin to death and, and walking in the Christian life with fir- firm ground under our feet. He wants rock and not sand under our feet. He wants us secure and confident. And so he, he labors so much in the scriptures, through the promises, through the covenants, to give us confidence in our relationship with him, to give us confidence that someday sin will lie dead at our feet, that someday the world will be evangelized and filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. We want to be on the winning team, don't we? And we are as Christians. And so he wants us to know, he prays in Ephesians, that we would know how much power is at work in us and and what, what kind of inheritance we're going to have in the saints and how glorious it's going to be. And so there's so much of this kind of language. Jesus speaks about somebody that builds his house on the sand as opposed to somebody who builds his house on the rock. We are on the rock. It's not going to move. So he, he works with us in terms of covenants. And covenants are vital in our relationship with God. So we went through that, the aspects of that. Um, I, I then described uh, various covenants that we can discern in Scripture. First, this idea of the covenant of works. The covenant of works, we said last time, uh, we cannot find that expression uh, in the Bible. It has to do with God's relationship to Adam in his innocence, in Adam's innocence, before Adam fell into sin. Uh, theologians have discerned a covenant there, although the word is never used directly, although we see a verse later on in Hosea that speaks of that, Hosea 6, 7, like Adam, they have broken the covenant. So there's an idea there of a covenant that God had with Adam. But all of the basic ingredients of a covenant were there. There were certain stipulations. There were certain boundaries to their relationship. There were blessings and curses. All of it was there, and Adam uh, was under this uh, covenant. There was a single command, do not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat of it, you will surely die. So that's the nature of the covenant of works. Adam's righteousness would be established if he obeyed the covenant. His uh, The curse would come down if he disobeyed. Did Adam keep the covenant of works? That's one of our foundational questions in our, our children's catechism. Did Adam keep the covenant of works? And the answer is no, he disobeyed God. And so he broke the covenant of works. He sinned against God. And so the death penalty came down on the human race as a result. So that's all uh, the idea of the covenant of works. Then we looked next, page five, at the covenant of uh, redemption. And the idea of the covenant of redemption is that it is a timeless and eternal covenant established within the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit concerning the saving of the human race. 
Now, we believe that temporally the covenant of redemption came first, that God actually had discerned and determined how he was going to save us from sin before Adam broke the covenant of works. But logically, you can see that the covenant of works comes first. There's the problem of sin that has entered the human race. And now what is God going to do about it? Well, the covenant of redemption, therefore, is an eternal covenant. Again, just like the covenant of works, we don't see the word covenant, but we can discern a set relationship between the Father, the Son, and the Spirit concerning redemption. The Father has a role. The Son has a role. The Holy Spirit has a role. The Father's role was, on page 5, he agreed to give the Son a people whom he would redeem for his own possession. He agreed to send the Son into the world as his representative, also to be their representative. He agreed to prepare a body for his Son in which he, the Son, would dwell as a man. He agreed to accept the Son as mediator for his people for whom, whom he had redeemed. He agreed to accept the death of his Son on their behalf as an atoning sacrifice or propitiation for their sins. Fifth, he agreed to raise the Son from the dead by his own power and uh, finally he agreed to give his son all authority in heaven and on earth to build his church so uh, that's uh, some aspects of the covenant of redemption that we see the father's role the son agrees to receive all of those things that the father's given he agrees that he is going to take on a human body he's going to enter the human race through the incarnation he's going to live a sinless life in obedience to his father's commands he is going to die a bloody death on the cross his blood will atone for the sins of his people he is going to give himself into the father's hands that the father would raise him from the dead on the third day he's going to do all of that so you have redemption planned you have redemption accomplished and then thirdly you have redemption applied and that's the role of the holy spirit the holy spirit takes the work of christ the finished work of christ and he brings it right to your heart he brings it right to where you are. I'm going to talk about that some on Sunday, God willing, how it says in Romans 10, the word is near you. It is in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we are proclaiming, that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So who is it that brings it right near you? It's the Holy Spirit who brings the word right to you. It was the spirit that inspired the gospel writers to write the account of Jesus's life. It was the Holy Spirit that inspired and moved uh, Paul to write his epistles, to write the book of Romans. It's the Holy Spirit's ministry to bring Jesus to you. You realize everything, and I mean everything you know about Jesus has come to you through the Holy Spirit's ministry. That's what he does. He brings Christ to you. And it is by the Spirit that Christ lives in the hearts of his redeemed people. So there you have redemption planned by the, by the Heavenly Father. You have redemption accomplished by the Son. You have redemption applied and it's being applied. His work isn't finished. The Holy Spirit's, I mean. Uh, applying the work of redemption to the people of God. That's the covenant of redemption. And we went through that a little bit quickly toward the end last time. Any questions about this, the covenant of redemption? Yes. When we have a God who has said we'll be accountable for every word we speak, mm-hmm. it makes me wonder, could God do anything but make covenants? I mean, is there any kind of interaction he has with human beings that aren't covenants? Uh, would be my first question. Yeah, I, I, it just seems to be the way God's chosen to relate to us. He's reliable. Things matter. He's faithful. Uh, he wants us to know that our salvation is guaranteed. So that's a good point. And secondly, yeah. Yeah, no, go ahead. Okay. I'm done. Um, we're kind of inferring all these things about... Covenant of works and covenant of redemption. You, yeah, yeah, you're reading between the lines. Yeah. Right. The covenant of grace, which we're about to get to, which has many different aspects to it, the word covenant is used all over the place. You're going to see the word covenant left and right. 
But yeah, we see it that way. And frankly, it's because the word is used so much in the final one, the covenant of grace, of which there are various flavors or types. The word covenant is all over the place that they are extrapolating back to this covenant of works and covenant of redemption saying, well, then God probably also dealt with uh, us through covenants that way as well. Okay, so that's that's a good question. All right, let's go on now on page six and dig into the covenant of grace, which is, I think, about where we stopped last time. went over it briefly, but um, first of all, the point I want to make is that that Adam's failure makes the covenant of grace necessary. We must have grace because we are sinners. You don't need grace if you're not a sinner. But you are a sinner because you're a human being. I know that biblically. I'm a sinner too. And therefore, we are totally dependent on grace. Now, if you understand grace um, properly, you're going to see that everything from, from Adam's sin in Genesis 3 onward is grace. Everything. Everything that God does is grace. Uh, for his people, everything he does to bring about his redemption plan. And uh, so he's dealing with this in grace. And, and so therefore, that's why Wayne Grudem summarizes all these other covenants, uh, even the Mosaic covenant under the covenant of grace, because it has its role to play in the salvation of his people. Although there is no salvation per se within the Mosaic covenant. You're not going to get saved by sacrificing an animal or by following all the ceremonial laws of Moses. That was a yoke Peter said that neither we nor our fathers have been able to bear. Nobody gets saved that way. But yet it's still grace from God, isn't it? Isn't it gracious that God gave us the Mosaic Covenant? It was gracious that he entrusted to us. Yes, Philip. Well, people make a distinction between the two. I mean, you really have to realize that anything that God does with us is grace. Um, But I think once the sin occurs, then that's when you really see the need for grace. Adam and his innocence, you would not say. Yeah, I mean, he failed. The covenant of works, he failed. We would have to say that Christ kept to some degree, you could look at it this way, the covenant of works, but the covenant of works that he kept was under the Mosaic covenant. Jesus was born under the law of Moses and kept its stipulation. I would think so. That's a good point. Thank you for making that. All right, as we look at the elements of the covenant, page uh, six and seven, first you have the parties. God uh, is the uh, maker of the covenant. The people whom God would redeem, they are the recipients of the covenant. And then there's the mediator between God and man, ultimately Christ Jesus. All right. So we have um, the covenant of grace. Now, the covenant, the condition, um, the requirements of the participation in page seven, the condition of beginning is faith in Christ, the redeemer. Now, what basically what we want to say is there is essentially one covenant that gets people saved. Remember how we saw in the in uh, the. Uh, doxology um, at the end of Hebrews. I think it's later in this outline, uh, page, yeah, 13. Go ahead and look ahead to 13 as we did last time. An essential unity in the way that God has dealt with sinners from the time of Adam on. There's an essential unity there. And it is from this essential unity that Paul is arguing in the book of Romans. Look at it again in Hebrews, uh, on page 13, Hebrews 13, 20 and 21. May the God of peace, who through the blood of the eternal covenant brought back from the dead, our, our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, equip you with everything good for doing his will. And may he work in us what is pleasing to him through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Now look what I wrote right below that. The eternal covenant, therefore, unites God's working in every phase of the covenant of grace, saying that Abel, Noah, Abraham, Moses, David, and Daniel all were saved in the same way as Peter, James, John, Paul, Martin Luther, and you, if you are a Christian. All of us get saved the same way. And how is that? 
by faith in the promise of God as he has revealed it at that stage in redemptive history. Now, we have more revealed to us in our stage of redemptive history. The new covenant is a fact of history now. Jesus established it. We are in the new covenant era. We're in the New Testament era. We have more revealed to us, uh, but it's the same way. And the, the essential sameness of all of this is the foundation of Paul's argument in Romans 4. What then shall we say that Abraham, our forefather, discovered in this matter? Well, in what matter? In the matter of how somebody gets saved in the matter of how it is that your sins are forgiven. He says that essentially Abraham was saved the same way as us. And how is that? He believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Does that go backward even before Abraham to Abel? Yes, it did. That's why you have the great faith chapter in Hebrews 11. By faith, Abel offered a sacrifice better than Cain's. By faith, he did this. And so he's justified by faith. Abel was right from the start. And so here we have a, an essential unity that brings that ties the whole, the whole of God's people together. We all get saved the same way by faith in the promises of God. That's a beautiful thing, isn't it? As an unfolding of redemptive history, we don't want to minimize that. Uh, before Jesus fulfilled the Mosaic law, you needed to do those things if you were a Jew. You had to obey those things, but they didn't save anybody. Nobody got saved that way. So anyway, what I'm, the basic point, if you don't get anything else out, out of what we're talking about tonight, I want to make this basic point. That despite the different phases of the covenant of grace, the different eras of redemptive history, there is an, one essential work and one essential covenant that God is using to save people. Everybody gets saved. I mean, every sinner gets saved through the blood of Jesus Christ in no other way. What can wash away my sin? Nothing. And I mean nothing but the blood of Jesus. So there it is. There's an essential unity in the work of God. But now let's look at some of the distinctive phases that God brought the people uh, through. Uh, back on page 7, the condition of beginning is faith in Christ's Redeemer, uh, as it says in Romans 117 on page 7. In it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as is written, that righteous will live by faith. That's an Old Testament quote. It was true in the Old Testament. The just, Habakkuk said, the just or the righteous are going to live by faith. It is by faith that they will, it'll take the word live to be survive on judgment day. Is that important to you? It is to me. I want to live beyond judgment day. I don't want to die eternally. So he's telling me there how to do it by faith. The just will live by faith. And then as we've already said, Romans 4, 3, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. So then we saw that Abraham believed in Christ and was saved. We saw this last time. Moses believed in Christ and was saved. David believed in Christ and was saved. Isaiah believed in Christ and was saved. So therefore, everybody uh, that is saved believes in Christ as he has been revealed at that point in redemptive history. Does that make sense? Do you understand? We have a fuller revelation of Christ and praise God for it. We have more details. We know more about his life. There were mysteries concerning Christ that were not revealed until he lived them. You read the Gospels and you'll get a clearer picture of Jesus than reading Isaiah the prophet. But there it was. It was predicted in Isaiah and in other places. Okay? Now, the promise of blessing in this covenant is eternal life of God himself. Revelation 21.3 And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men and he will live with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. That's the ultimate promise of the covenant. That's what he's offering. He's offering himself. He's offering eternal fellowship with himself. And what could be better than that? Can you think of any prize or treasure greater than God himself? Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield and your very great reward. I am what you get. 
after the life of faith. So he is our reward. We get eternal fellowship with him. Now, the sign of the covenant varied over time. There are different signs. And I had a lot of discussion with folks afterwards about baptism and circumcision. And our good friends, uh, Presbyterians and others, paedo-baptists, that means child baby baptizers. You realize, you who uh, claim to be Baptists, we are in the overwhelming minority among those that claim to be Christians. Most people who claim to be Christians baptize infants. The Orthodox do, the Catholics do. Uh, different flavors of the Orthodox do, the Catholics do, Methodists do, Anglicans do, Presbyterians do. Uh, they, they, they all uh, baptize their infants. We, the free church kind of movement, the Baptist, Baptistic people, we don't. That doesn't make us wrong, though, now does it, okay? <laughs> I'm just saying we should know where we stand. The overwhelming majority of our brothers and sisters claiming to be Christ, trusting in Him alone for their salvation, they will baptize their uh, infants and that and they believe that it's because of that covenant that continuing covenant just as they circumcise infants in the old testament you're going to baptize in the new now i'm not getting into that whole topic tonight we're not doing baptism tonight but what i am saying is that that's what they're arguing for there's an essential unity of the covenant throughout they call it covenant theology and frequently the sign of it's going to be infant baptism all right means something else yeah for them it's salvific yeah, and, and in the membership class, we talk about three different views um, of salvation. One of them is that it's uh, salvific, and that's the Roman Catholic. I, I really didn't know that when I was a Catholic. It's amazing the stuff you don't know as a Catholic. I mean, and, and actually, I don't think it's an accident because they don't think you really have to know it. They, they need to know it. You don't need to know it. You just need to show up and do what you're told. I mean, basically, follow the sacramental way. Do the things you're told. You're going to purgatory anyway because you're not a saint. I mean, if you were a saint, we'd all know it by now. All right, so you're not. You're going to purgatory. So then the issue is how long or short your time in purgatory will be. The rest of it, you know, that's why the Mass was in Latin for so long because it doesn't matter whether you know what's going on. The thing works on you whether you believe or not. It works on you whether you understand or not. Just come and it will have benefit for you. We don't believe that. We think that God is constantly reasoning with us, right? Come now, let us reason together. There are things he says, you have to believe them. There are promises he makes, you have to take them to heart. That's why he engraves the commandments up there on stone and puts them on the, uh, on the rock uh, in the time of Joshua for everybody to read so that we can read it and know and understand what's happening. That's why he translates things in the New Testament. How many times does it say, which when translated means God with us or et cetera, Eloi, Eloi, Laba Samachtami, which, which means my God, my God, why have you forsaken? He's translating, why? So that we can understand it. He wants us to know. All right, so you're right. There are different ways that different groups have looked at baptism. I did not realize as a Catholic that I was born again, so they believe, the moment that I was infant baptized. So that's when I was born again. I was made a new creature. Yep. Yep. As a matter of fact, Spurgeon preached a, a, a sermon. Charles Spurgeon, a Baptist preacher from the 19th century, preached a sermon called "Children Brought to Christ and Not to the Font to the to Baptism." There's a distinction between bringing a child to Christ and bringing him to be baptized. And so there he's specifically dealing with the issue of infant baptism. But the point is, bring them to Christ. There's no there's no baptism there. And so we should be evangelizing our children the moment that they come, they come home uh, from the hospital. Anyway, I don't want to digress into talking about <laughs> nothing but baptism. I know you're all very interested in that, but a place for everything and everything in its place. That's the whole thing with systematic theology. We're talking about covenants tonight. So we touch on it and we move on, okay? 
Now, as we've mentioned on page eight, why is it called the covenant of grace? It's because grace is God's commitment to deal bountifully with a sinful people. It's his commitment to give us every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms, despite the fact that we deserve eternal condemnation in hell. And so any good thing we get, think about that, friends. Any good thing that helps you along your way, anything that has helped you in your Christian life has come to you by grace. That includes the worldwide flood of Noah and Sodom and Gomorrah. Any acts of judgment you read about in the Bible, they help you, don't they? They do. They help you. So even those, uh, those acts of judgment help God's people because we read them and we take the warning, don't we? It says in 1 Corinthians 10, all these things were written for warnings to help us. And so we read all of its grace. God is dealing with us bountifully, isn't he? He is dealing with us so that we may spend eternity with him in heaven. So we look at it by grace, all of it's from grace. Romans 4.16, another reason why it's by grace is because God wants it to happen. And if it isn't by grace, friends, it will not happen. That's the whole problem with the Mosaic Covenant, all right? If it is not by grace, if it is rather by works, it will not happen. But instead, God wants it to happen, so he does it by grace. Romans 4.16, therefore the promise comes by faith so that it may be by grace and may be guaranteed. Do you see that? He wants the thing guaranteed. He wants it set. He wants it secure. Therefore, it's got to be by grace. By the way, grace and faith just go intimately together. They just fit together in Paul's mind there in Romans 4.16. Now, let's talk about the different forms of this covenant of grace. First, there was the covenant with Noah. There was this covenant with Noah. In Genesis 9, 9 through 17, it says, I now establish my covenant with you and with your descendants after you and with every living creature that was with you, the birds, the livestock, and all the wild animals, all those that came out of the ark with you, every living creature on earth, I establish my covenant with you. Never again will all life be cut off by the waters of a flood. Never again will there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, this is the sign of the covenant I am making between me and you and every living creature with you, a covenant for all generations to come. I have set my rainbow in the clouds and it will be the sign of the covenant between me and the earth. Whenever I bring clouds over the earth, and the rainbow appears in the clouds, I will remember my covenant between me and you and all living creatures of every kind. Never again will the waters become a flood to destroy all life. Whenever the rainbow appears in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and all living creatures of every kind on the earth. So God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant I have established between me and all life on the earth. Now, the first time the word covenant appears is in Genesis 6, uh, in which God says, I will make a covenant with you and all those that get on the ark with you, etc. He's going to preserve their life. The, the basic grace in the, in the covenant there is that Noah and his wife and his sons and their wives survived. They survived. God didn't snuff out the human race. He could have. He could have, but he chose not to. He maintained a remnant eight people who were to repopulate the earth. And so that was grace. God also had an extending grace in which he would never again destroy all the world by water. He would not bring a flood like this again, ever again. And he made a sign of the covenant, the rainbow. And it's interesting because rainbow is really just a it's a human phenomenon, really. It just has to do with the, the bending of white light through the atmosphere and, and through the, the moisture in the atmosphere, like a prism. And so the, you see it, but God says, whenever I see it, I will remember. He doesn't need the rainbow to remember, friends. So it's an interesting thing that he does. Now, notice that this is a totally and completely unidirectional covenant. Is there anything that, that Noah or the animals need to do to keep their end of the covenant here? 
What do they need to do to keep their end of the covenant? Well, God did tell him to do certain things. Yes, but look at the covenant here. What did Noah have to do to keep the covenant? And remember what I'm talking about. I will never again bring water on the earth. And we're not talking about surviving at this point. We're talking about never again will I bring. What do we have to do to keep that covenant? Thank you. <laughs> Nothing. We don't need to do a thing. We, there is no, it's not bidirectional. There's no burden laid on us. It's just something God has said he's not going to do. But he is going to bring judgment. Read about it in the book of Revelation. It's coming. Just like I said, God gave Noah a rainbow sign. No more water, fire next time. All right? So basically, that's one way to look at it. And if you read the book of Revelation, that is precisely what's going to happen. And you can read about it even more clearly, perhaps, in Second Peter. He's going to be destroying the elements by fire. That's coming. All right, so it's not like he's not going to bring judgment. He is. But he's not going to bring that kind of judgment. And he hasn't. By the way, this is one of the great uh, arguments against a localized flood. You know how the liberals tell you that it was not a worldwide flood? They say it's localized. Well, there have been many localized floods, haven't there, since then? Many. All right? And, uh, you know, a little child of one, I think it was Ken Ham, said, you know, but Dad, if it's a localized flood, then God's broken his promise again and again. Yeah, well, God here is talking about a universal flood that snuffs out all mankind, all life. He said, I'm never going to do that again. And God has kept his promise. So this is a good example of one of these unidirectional covenants in which there's really nothing for, them, for man to do. Nothing at all. Okay? Secondly, we have the covenant with Abraham, uh, page 9. This is the covenant concerning the promised land. And then there's the covenant of many descendants. Now, it's, it's really two aspects of the same covenant. God makes a covenant with Abraham uh, that he will uh, have descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as countless as the sand in the seashore. That's what he says. And secondly, he's going to give him this land, the land of the Canaanites, Perizzites, Jebusites, Hivites, and all the other ites. I don't remember them all but there's like nine of them. Uh, uh, Abraham and his descendants will possess that promised land. He tells them where it is. It's from the great sea to the river Euphrates. Uh, He tells them from the body of Egypt uh, up to uh, et cetera. He's got the whole thing uh, set out. That is the covenant land, the promised land. And he makes a covenant with them concerning this land. He he, He said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to take possession of it. But Abram said, O sovereign Lord, how can I know that I will gain possession of it? So the Lord said to him, bring me a heifer, a goat and a ram, each three years old, along with a dove and a young pigeon. Abram brought all of these to him, cut them in two, arranged the halves opposite each other. The birds, however, he did not cut in half. Then birds of prey came down in the carcasses, but Abram drove them away. As the sun was setting, Abram fell into a deep sleep and a thick and dreadful darkness came over him. Then the Lord said, said to him, Know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own, and they will be enslaved and mistreated 400 years. But I will punish the nation they serve as slaves, and afterward they will come out with great possessions. You, however, will go to your fathers in peace and be buried at a good old age. In the fourth generation, your descendants will come back here, for the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. When the sun had set and darkness had fallen, a smoking fire pot with a blazing torch appeared and passed between the pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram and said, To your descendants I give this land, from the river of Egypt to the great river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, Kenizzites, Cadmonites, Hittites, Perizzites, Rephites, Amorites, Canaanites, Gerashites, and Jebusites. All right, this is the covenant concerning the land. Earlier in the chapter, he had made the promise concerning the multitude of descendants. So shall your offspring be. But this is later in the chapter. 
He says, I'm going to give you the land. Abram asks a key question. What is the question that God, that Abram asked God? What does he ask him? How can I know? The rest of the chapter is God's answer. All right. By the way, he says, he says, I want you to know for a long time, it's going to look like you're not getting the land. And I want you to know that so that when it happens, you will know I told you ahead of time. And that's so similar to Jesus uh, the night before he dies in John 16. I want you to know how it's going to go for you because it's going to be tough. I'm I'm promising you that in my father's house are many rooms. For not so I would have told you I'm going there to prepare a place for you and I will come back and take you to be with me and you'll live with me forever. I want you to be with me where I am to see my glory. But I I want you to know how it's going to be for you from now on while you still live in this world. In this world, you will have trouble. That's what he's saying. He said, I want you to be forewarned of how it's going to be. Well, he does the same thing here with Abram, doesn't he? He says, it's going to be 400 years before you get the land. You're going to be enslaved. You're going to be mistreated. And only after that am I going to punish the nation they serve as slaves. And then they will come out with great possessions and they'll take uh, the promised land. He gives also the reason. He says the sin of the Amorites hasn't reached its full measure. That means the Amorites are the people who are living in the land at that present time. What does he mean when he says that the sin of the Amorites hasn't reached its full measure yet? What does he mean by that? They have more sin to do. They haven't finished storing up wrath against themselves for the day of God's wrath. Who sets the size of the measure? Oh, you know it. God sets the size of the measure and he says it's not full yet. That is the, the, the attribute of God that sets the size of the measure is his mercy and his grace and compassion. He is a very long-suffering God. He puts up with unbelievable things. And we don't even know what the sin of the Amorites was. But we know it's probably very evil. And God waited for another 400 years. Isn't that incredible? The patience and long-suffering of God. I'm telling you that every mouth will be shut on the day of judgment. Nobody will accuse God of anything. Because God is a long-suffering, patient, and loving God. But he says, I want you to know for a long time it's going to look like uh, you're not getting it. And frankly, you aren't getting it, Abraham. (laughs) You're going to go to your people. You're going to go to your people and die at a good old age. It's going to be your descendants in the fourth generation will get it. Philip, yes. Uh, Well, you know what happened in the book of Joshua. Um, Many of the people were slaughtered and the land was taken, but they didn't completely finish and so God says in the beginning of the book of Judges, he said, because you didn't obey me and because you didn't completely you know, wipe out all of the people, I'm going to leave them as a snare to you and a stumbling block, etc. You can read about it. Yeah, that's a good question. They did not obey him fully. You know, it's amazing how, you know, when people get involved, things get messy and complicated. You know what I'm saying? Because uh, remember how they said in the book of Joshua, they said, well, we can't drive them out. They have iron chariots. Well, what, what are iron chariots to God? You know, but they're saying we just can't drive these people out. Yeah, Dick, go ahead. Uh-huh. Idolatry, gross, gross immorality, child sacrifice. Yeah. That's right. It's just incredible, the patience of God. We don't, we don't have any idea um, how tolerant he is towards sin in that his eyes are so pure he can't even look at it and yet he puts up with it for, for just year after year after year. Very patient God. But he remembers everything. Everything's written down in his book. 
And so at any rate, here, here's the point. God is making a covenant with Abraham here, Abram at this point, his name is Abram, uh, so that he will know for certain. And remember how I, uh, if, you, if you haven't heard my sermon in Genesis 15, you get the tape. But basically what's happening is the animals are being split apart and a pathway is made between the animals, similar to this pathway between these chairs here. And in this covenant cutting ceremony, the participants in the covenant walk between the dead split apart animals to represent what will happen to them if they break the covenant. It's it's really a threat. You know, may this, what's happened to these animals, may this happen to me if I don't keep the covenant. This was the way they did it in the ancient Near East. And so they would walk between uh, the pieces of the covenant. And when I preach in Genesis 15, I showed a parallel text in Je- Jeremiah that proves what I'm saying. This is what they did to cut covenants. And that's, that is, by the way, the verb that's used. You don't write a covenant. You don't make a covenant. You cut a covenant. Kathav is the Hebrew word. You cut a covenant. And so they, they basically would cut these animals and then it would walk between them. All right? Now, here's the thing. He cuts up the animals, separates them. Then there's this period of delay. And then this dreadful darkness comes over Abram and he's terrified. The fear of the Lord has come. God is there now. God has appeared. It's a terrifying moment. And God is there represented by fire, a smoldering fire pot. God is there represented by the fire pot. What does the fire pot do? What does it do? It passes between the pieces. What is God saying thereby? May this happen to me if I don't keep this covenant. That's what he's saying. It's really quite astonishing. Remember Abram's question, how can I know I will receive this? Now, you might think this is almost like Zechariah who said, now, how do I know that I'm going to have this boy? He's like, all right, look, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God. And because you didn't believe me, you're not going to say a word until this thing happens. Well, God doesn't deal with Abram that way. He deals seriously with him. And I think the reason is it isn't just Abram asking. It's 400 years of Jews that are asking. Do you understand what I'm saying? 400 years of Jews. Now, let me ask you a question. I asked this at the time, but it's a poignant question. Let's say you're a Jew who lives from a, you know, from 250 years to go to 120 years to go. That's your lifespan. Your life is slavery in Egypt. That's what you are. You're a slave in Egypt. How does your soul get saved? How do you, when after you die, after your life of bondage in Egypt, how do you go to heaven? By faith in Christ, or as we would say, faith in the promises of God as they were revealed at that point. Do you have to believe that someday you're going to get the promised land? Like Abram did? Yeah, you do. So this covenant cutting ceremony wasn't just for Abram. It was for all the Jews who for 400 years would have to wait on that promise of God. So God was gracious to them and gave them an incredible symbol and said, may this happen to me if I don't keep this promise. I will keep it. And so he does. And the people languishing in slavery for all those hundreds of years in Egypt had to hold on to that promise and nothing else. You know what it tells me is don't complain. I mean, our life is not too tough. You know what I'm saying? These folks, all they had was bondage for a long period of time and the promise from God. And when they died, if they believed that promise, uh, their sins would be forgiven through the blood of Christ and they would go in the presence of God. It's an incredible thing. And so this is the seriousness that God takes this covenant. He says, may I be blown apart. And I frankly think that's true of all the covenants. It's a covenant um, that he makes uh, in Jesus. If he, doesn't, if he doesn't keep it, if he doesn't receive any that come in Christ's name, he says, all that the Father gives me will come to me. And those who come to me, I will never drive away. Well, if he breaks that word, may that happen to him. But he won't. He's a faithful covenant-keeping God. Isn't that marvelous? 
What an incredible chapter is Genesis 15. I could just preach it the rest of the evening, but we're going to keep moving. All right. Then there's the next covenant, and that's uh, the covenant of circumcision or the sign of circumcision. That's the covenant of many descendants. Remember, I told you there are two aspects of the covenant he was making with Abraham, the land and the many descendants. All right. So look what it says in Genesis 17. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared before him, appeared to him and said, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless. Now, you have to read that in context as I was right after the whole thing with Hagar and Ishmael. Genesis 16, not one of the stellar chapters in Abraham's life. Okay, so basically God comes again and says, be holy because I am holy. All right. Don't do that stuff anymore with Hagar and all that. Wait on me. Trust in me. Let me work it out. Okay. He says, I will confirm my covenant between me and you and will greatly increase your numbers. Abram fell face down and God said to him, as for me, this is my covenant with you. You will be the father of many nations. No longer will you be called Abram. Your name will be Abraham, for I've made you the father of many nations. I will make you very fruitful. I will make nations of you and kings will come from you. I will establish my covenant as an everlasting covenant between me and you and your descendants after you for the generations to come to be your God and the God of your descendants after you. The whole land of Canaan, where you are now an alien, I will give you as an everlasting possession to you and your descendants after you, and I will be their God. Why does he say that, by the way? The land of Canaan, I will give you. This is after Genesis 15. This is after the covenant cutting ceremony. Why does he say, again, I will give you the land? He says it again after he, do, he doesn't sacrifice, he almost sacrifices Isaac. He repeats it again in Genesis 22. Why does he keep repeating it? Say again. Affirmation. Do you think Abraham needed it? Yeah. Do you need it? Yeah. What is the food of your faith? Is it not the word of God? Doesn't faith come by hearing? Is it not also strengthened by hearing, renewed by hearing? Don't you need to hear again and again that Jesus will welcome you on judgment day? Uh, you know, that he will, that his blood will be sufficient for all your sins. Don't you need, or you didn't just hear that once. Just once is enough. I don't, I need to hear it every day. Peter. Okay. Well, Chapter one, so I'll always remind you of these things that even though that you know them and firmly established in the truth you now have, I think it right to establish them as long as it live and become the pattern. Yeah. Basically Paul's in that case. Yeah, and Paul says the same thing in Philippians. There's no trouble for me to write the same things you again to you again, and there's a safeguard for you. So he's into into repetition. Um, and you know, you should thrill to it. You should thrill to hear the promises of the gospel in Christ. Uh, they are your life. That, that is what you're hoping for. And so he tells him again. But then he gives him the sign. He said, I'm going to give you the sign. As for me, verse 9, uh, at, then God said to Abraham, as for you, you must keep my covenant, you and your descendants after you for generations to come. This is my covenant with you and your descendants after you, the covenant you are to keep, colon, uh, every male among you shall be circumcised. You are to undergo circumcision and it will be the sign of the covenant between me and you. So there's the sign of the covenant circumcision now this is dealt with most thoroughly in the new testament if you're wondering about why we don't still need to circumcise religiously and all that this is the point of, of acts 15 this is the point of the book of galatians this is the point of romans um four he received circumcision the sign of the righteousness that he already had by faith he goes into all this and we're not going to spend time on it tonight but it was the sign of the covenant it is troubling when it says in genesis 17 that it's an everlasting covenant in my in your flesh and so we went through all this in the men's bible study you know, it, it, why, you know, it sure seems like the liberals are those like Peter and Paul and the others saying we don't need to do this anymore. But, you know, Paul, in effect, says, look more closely. When was Abraham justified? Was it not before he was circumcised? So basically, Abraham was welcomed by God as an uncircumcised, like Gentile almost. That's about the argument he's making. It was before he was circumcised that he was justified. So that's the sign of the covenant. Uh, this covenant with Abraham included 
Uh, it was also made with Isaac and Jacob, page 10. Uh, Genesis 17, 11, or 17, 19, sorry. Then God said, yes, but your wife Sarah will bear you a son and you will call him Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his descendants after him. And then in Exodus 2, 23 through 25, during that long period, the king of Egypt died. The Israelites groaned in their slavery and cried out and their cry for help because of their slavery went up to God. God heard their groaning and he remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac and with Jacob. So God looked out on the Israelites and was concerned about them. So the point of me including that is that God made the same covenant with Jacob as well. Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, they all get the covenant. What is it? Well, the covenant is that they would get the land, the promised land, and that there would be a multiplicity of descendants. And by the way, it was while they were in Egypt that God fulfilled the second of those, really the first, which was the multiplicity of descendants. Your descendants will be as numerous as the stars in the sky and as countless as the sand in the seashore. They estimate two million Jews left with Moses during the Exodus. That's four generations. Four, would you, how would you feel if you found out that four generations from now, your descendants would be two million in number? All right? Wouldn't that be actually a little scary? You know, I would. I'd be like, whoa, what is the deal? What's in the water? You know, what kind of, what's happening? But God clearly, you know, and it says that God dealt bountifully with the Jews in Egypt. And yet they're in slavery. How did he deal bountifully with them? He blessed them by having lots and lots and lots of children. Lots of children. Huge numbers of children. And as a matter of fact, to some some degree, you have to say that that's why the Pharaoh was motivated to start killing them in, in their infancy. They're like, these folks are going to take over the land. I mean, look at this. And so they, he's dealing, I'm not justifying it was evil and God said so, but all I'm saying is that they were just, they were being blessed by God in, in preparation uh, for taking the promised land and also in fulfillment of the covenant that God made with Abraham. Does God keep his covenants? Yes, he does. Did they not get the promised land all the way to the Euphrates? Yes, they did. It's an incredible thing. All right, so then there is the covenant with Moses. This is the third one. We've got the, Noah, the covenant with Noah, then the covenant with uh, Abraham. Now we have the covenant with Moses. The covenant with Moses is also known generally as the Old Covenant, right? Uh, another word for covenant in, in older English is testament, okay? They're the same. They're synonyms. So the Old Testament is the Old Covenant. The New Testament, the New Covenant. That's what the word means. Now, what is the Old Covenant? Well, the essence of it here is in Exodus 19, 5 and 6. Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all nations you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you are to speak to the Israelites. Now, there's some key words there right at the beginning. Do you see it? What do you, what do you notice in there? Let me get this. If, all right, this is the big, the big tough word here. Okay, you've got to watch that word. That's a tricky word right there. That's an important word. If, it's a conditional covenant. If you obey me fully, you will be out of all the nations for me a treasured possession. Fully bothers me more than if. Fully? Right. And, and here's, here's a verse I saw today, Deuteronomy 6. If you can look at Deuteronomy 6, it's the essence of the Old Covenant as well. Deuteronomy 6, verse 25. It's not in your outline, but just if you take a minute and look there. Deuteronomy 6, 25 says, <clears throat> I'm listening. Okay, mostly it sounds like you're there. All right, Deuteronomy 6, 25, it says, And if we are careful to obey all this law, 
before the Lord our God as he has commanded us, that will be our righteousness. Wow. Actually, there's another word that's troubling, and that's this word, all. Okay? If all. If we keep all of it. All, all of what? All of the commands that God's given us. Well, how often do we need to keep all of the commandments? Like all the time, all right? That's the old covenant. If, if you can do this, that will be your righteousness, if you can do that, okay? That's the old covenant. It's a big condition. Did they meet the condition? Did Adam keep the covenant of works? No. Did they keep the old covenant? No, they did not. And as a matter of fact, Peter said, why are you troubling the Gentiles by putting on them a yoke that neither we nor our fathers have been able to bear? For centuries they proved they could not keep this covenant. Centuries they proved proved it. Adam couldn't keep his and they couldn't keep theirs. I'll tell you what, I mean, if there's one lesson that just comes through is you can't save yourself. I mean, do you get that? I mean, again and again, we are humbled by this. If there's this condition, if there's something you must meet and by your own strength, apart from God meeting it in you, you will not meet it. You will fail. That's what happened to Adam. It's what happened to the Jews in the Old Covenant. You can't do it. By the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. It's just it's that simple. We will not meet the condition. But there is one who met it, and that's Jesus. He obeyed fully every stipulation of the Mosaic Covenant. Galatians 4.4 4 says, In the fullness of time God sent his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who are under the law. All right? Jesus came under the law, stepped in or was born incarnate under the law and carried it. Isn't that incredible? I mean, he, he bore the weight of all of those commandments perfectly for his whole life. And frankly, for me, that is my righteousness, not the Deuteronomy 6.25. That Jesus did it, that's my righteousness, plus the fact that he died on the cross for the way I didn't do it. Those two combined together, that's my righteousness. His blood shed for my sins, his act of righteousness achieved under the law of Moses, those things together, I stand in on judgment day and no other. That's what my great hope is. And so it also is yours if you're a Christian. It's Jesus's obedience to the laws of God. It's Jesus's obedience to the command to die on the cross that saves me. All right, now with this... Uh, with this covenant came the, you know, the, the law written in stone, the Ten Commandments, all of those things. I mean, it's an amazing thing. You look at the Ten Commandments and say, you know, well, that's simple. We'll just focus on those and keep those. Have you ever witnessed to somebody and say, well, I just tried to keep, keep the Ten Commandments. I just say, have you read them? I mean, have you read them? Uh, you know, uh, you shall not covet. Let's just start with commandment number 10, you know, or honor your father and mother, you know, and it's just amazing. I just use the Ten Commandments all the time in witnessing to show people that they uh, are sinners. I also use the two great commandments Jesus used to summarize all of it. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbors yourself. That summarizes the Ten Commandments and all the other commandments. All right, so there it is. Now, with the covenant, Mosaic covenant, we had covenant blessings and covenant curses. As a matter of fact, when they entered the promised land, they had a group of tribes, five of the, or, uh, six of the tribes, uh, standing on... Uh, on uh, one mountain uh, proclaiming the blessings and then they had another uh, group of the tribe standing on the other uh, mountain pr- pronouncing the curses. They got it, okay? Blessings for obedience, curses for disobedience. That's, by the way, parenting 101, isn't it? I mean, it's just really that simple. What do you want? Do you want the carrot or the stick? It's really that simple, all right? <laughs> clean your room, da, 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 you get the carrot. Don't clean it, you get the stick. It's up to us to figure out what the stick is at different levels of parenting and we, try, we continue it or the carrot as well. 
This is the covenant. It's a conditional issue, right? If you meet the criteria, you'll get the blessing. If you do not meet it, you will get the curse. Well, what were the blessings? Well, in Leviticus 26, it gives a list of them. For example, if you follow my decrees and are careful to keep my commands, I will send you rain in its season and the ground will yield its crops and the trees uh, of the field, their fruit, your threshing will continue until grape harvest and the grape harvest will continue until planting. Well, that sounds good. Wow. I mean, it's just comprehensive blessing here. It's just nothing but good things all the time. Uh, and you will eat all the food you want and live in safety in your land. I will grant peace in the land and you will lie down and no one will make you afraid. <clears throat> I will remove savage beasts from the land and the sword will not pass through your country. You will pursue your enemies and they will fall by the sword before you. Five of you will chase a hundred. A hundred of you will chase 10,000 and your enemies will fall by the sword before them. I will look on you with favor and make you fruitful and increase your numbers. And I will keep my covenant with you. You will still be eating last year's harvest when you have to move it out to make room for the new. I will, I will put my dwelling place among you and I will not abhor you. I will walk among you and be your God and you will be my people. Does that sound familiar? That is ultimately the blessing of the covenant. And by the way, what's the first uh, word in this whole quote here? Up, up there at the beginning, Leviticus 26, 3 through 3. What's the first word? If, Okay. Just, just note that. It's like the fine print. You know what I'm saying? Just note the whole thing is, is conditional. It's all conditional. All right? I will put my dwelling place among you and I will not abhor you. I will walk among you and be your God. You will be my people. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt so that you would no longer be slaves to the Egyptians. I broke the bars of your yoke uh, and enabled you to walk with your heads held high. Isn't that beautiful? That's a beautiful thing. I like to read the blessings passages because I believe that that's what Christ bought for me through his obedience. Maybe not physically, like, you know, we're going to be great farmers. Okay, I'm not thinking that way. But I'm thinking every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms is mine in Christ Jesus because he obeyed. Not because I obeyed, but because he did. What about the covenant curses? Well, that gets pretty bad. Listen, but if you will not listen to me and carry out all these commands, if you reject my decrees and abhor my laws and fail to carry out all my commands and so violate my covenant, then I will do this to you. I will bring upon you sudden terror wasting diseases and a fever that will destroy your sight and drain away your life. You will plant seed in vain because your enemies will eat it. I'll set my face against you so that you will be defeated by your enemies. Those who hate you will rule over you and you will flee even when no one is pursuing you. If after all this you will not listen to me, I'll punish you for your sins seven times over. I will break down your stubborn pride and make the sky above you like iron and the ground beneath you like bronze." Your strength will be spent in vain because your soil will not yield its crops, nor will the trees of the land yield their fruit. If you remain hostile toward me and refuse to listen to me, I will multiply your afflictions seven times over as your sins deserve. I will send wild animals against you and they will rob you of your children and destroy your cattle and make you so few in number that your roads will be deserted. So that's the covenant curses. Now, the Mosaic Covenant was tied to two specific things promised to Abraham. First, possession of the promised land. Second, multiplicity of descendants. Notice that God fulfilled those promises, but continuation in those blessings was dependent upon their obedience to the law of Moses. Notice what he said is one of the curses. I'll make you so few in number that your roads will be deserted. Did you notice that? It's exactly the opposite of what he had promised to Abraham, that he would make their descendants as numerous as the stars of the sky. So in other words, continuation in the promised land and continuation in having a large population was dependent on obedience to the law of Moses. They didn't obey. They lost the promised land and they were 
basically slaughtered. Basically, it said, unless the Lord Almighty had left us some, some survivors, we would have become like Sodom and been like Gomorrah. We would have been all gone, wiped out. Yeah, go ahead. So yeah. mm-hmm. they did have uh, a way of uh, atoning for their sins. Not really. I mean, they they had a way they had a way of sy- symbolizing atonement for sin. Because yeah. we learn from the book of Hebrews that the blood of bulls and goats can never atone for sin. And and the true the true remnant back then they knew it. They knew it. Isaiah knew it. David knew it. They knew that the blood of of a bull or a goat could not take away sin. They did it because they were obeying God because God said that it be done. But they knew it, what, it wasn't going to save them. Okay, that's a good point, though. So now, if, go ahead. So, if they, so if they kept up with the animal sacrifices and did them when they realized that they had sinned, would the blessings have continued? They would. They would have been keeping the law. No, as well as they could. I don't think so at all, because it says the multitude of your sacrifices. What are they me? I have more than enough of the blood of bulls and goats and animals. They were doing the sacrifices. Isaiah said, "I'm sick of it. It's like a machine in here." I mean, you guys, you guys, like, okay, how many bulls do I have to do if I want to commit adultery with my neighbor? You know, two bulls. Okay, it's worth it. You know, there was just this this sense of 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 tra- of a transaction. He's like, you don't you don't read Isaiah one. You'll see it. He's like, <clears throat> I have more than enough of the blood of bulls and goats and lambs. I'm not hurting for that. I don't need that. And he says in Psalm 50, if I were hungry, I wouldn't tell you. And if I needed sacrifice, I wouldn't go to you. Do I eat the flesh of bulls? I don't need this. You're missing the point. The point was to bring you to repentance and brokenness over your sin. David got it in Psalm 51. He said, a broken and contrite spirit is what God's looking for here and knowing that the bulls aren't going to save him. Anyway, um, some would argue that this Mosaic law should not be under the covenant of grace because it's not grace at all. What I am saying, I agree with you, but what I am saying is that the fact that it came and the fact that it did its work all those years and the fact that the history played out as it did was grace. That's, that's what I'm saying. It, 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 save, it helped save us because we know that we can't save ourselves that way. Do you see? That's the point I'm making. It was grace that God gave it. And God's people know what that's about. They look and say, I know I can't be saved that way. David knew it. The remnant knows it. The elect know it. They look at that and they say, I'm not going to be saved by the works of the law. They know it. But there was this whole acted out history that helps them to come to that conclusion. So the fact that it was given was grace, although within it, there was no grace. Do you see what I'm saying? I hope you understand the distinction I'm making there. Okay. Ultimately, the law of Moses was a tutor to bring us to Christ. In Galatians 3.24, it says, Therefore, the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ so that we may be justified by faith. You see, not by works. All right, the last covenant we'll deal with quickly tonight is the covenant of David, and the next time we'll talk about the new covenant. The covenant with David, referred to as a covenant uh, to Solomon, he says in 2 Chronicles 7.18, I will establish your royal throne as I covenanted with David your father when I said you shall never fail to have a man to rule Israel. So it's called a covenant there. It is not called a covenant when Nathan the prophet tells him about it, but it is a covenant. That's all I'm saying. It's a covenant with David. What is the Davidic covenant? Uh, later it says in Second Chronicles 21.7, Nevertheless, because of the covenant the Lord had made with David, the Lord was not willing to destroy the house of David. He had promised to maintain a lamp for him and his descendants forever. All right, well, what was the covenant? Here it is, Second Samuel 7. Remember the context, David wanted to build a temple. 
And so uh, he said, I want to build a house for the Lord. Nathan goes back and says, the Lord's going to build a house for you. This is what he says. The Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. You want to build a house for me? You're not going to build a house for me. I will build a house for you. And he's changing, he's, he's changing the terms, all right? The house he's going to build for David, it's like the house of David. It's a lineage, isn't it? And ultimately, it's uh, fulfilled in Christ. The Lord will, will establish a house for you. When your days are over and you rest with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you who will come from your own body and I will establish his covenant. He is the one who will build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. <clears throat> I will be his father and he will be my son. That's quoted many times in the New Testament. When he does wrong, I will punish him with the rod of men, with the floggings inflicted by men. But my love will never be taken away from him as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you. <clears throat> your house and your kingdom will endure before me. Your throne, your throne will be established forever. Now, let me ask the same question I asked about Noah's covenant. What condition does David need to meet in order for this to happen? There are no conditions David meets. This is something God is going to do. And we know why. Because David's son is Jesus. And he's going to raise up Jesus to David. You see? He is the son of David. It says that in Matthew 1 1. Go ahead. What is the phrase, whom he did wrong? Okay, it's a very good question. For, yeah, Solomon did wrong right away. And, and the, the, um, the lineage is going to be filled with sinners. If you look at the genealogy, there's all kinds of sinners in there. So the he is more before. All right, first of all, if you think it's Christ, realize that it's true just christ never meets the condition <laughs> okay he never does wrong and so it's not it's not removed it, it, you could say it even applies to jesus it's just that jesus never did anything wrong and so he never gets punished with the floggings of men all right he does get punished as a substitute that's different but he never commits any sin but i think if you really look at it look at it from redemptive history there's a long genealogy to go from David to Jesus. The genealogy is recorded in, in Luke and also in Matthew. I think it's Mary's genealogy and, 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 and Joseph's. It's all there. And a lot of those folks were sinners. And God has to deal with them pretty directly. And frankly, it includes the exile of Babylon. That was a great flogging, wasn't it? But there's always a survivor, isn't there? There's always a Davidic descendant. The genealogy never gets snipped. It comes close a few times, but it never gets snipped. It could have been, but it never was. That's the, that's what I the way I take from it. Okay, basically the bottom line is this is an, an unconditional covenant made with David that someone would reign on David's throne forever and ever. And we know who it is. For to us a son is given, to us a child is born, and the government will be on his shoulders. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his kingdom and of peace there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and establish it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. It's Jesus. Jesus is the fulfillment of the Davidic covenant. We're out of time. So let's uh, go at this next time and uh, talk about the new covenant and go on from there. Let's close in prayer. <clears throat> Father, we thank you for the study we've had tonight of covenants. We thank you for the way that they teach us about how you deal with us in our sin and how you deal with us incredibly in grace and mercy. Oh, Lord, help us to be confident before you always, all the days of our lives. Help us to know that you have, through Jesus, provided a sure and certain righteousness that we can stand under and trust in that will survive from here to eternity. Help us, O oh Lord, to rest in that and to fight sin with great determination, with great boldness, knowing that someday all sin will lay dead at our feet. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. 
Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build His kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.